Welcome to the IAOMS podcast series, where we gather for unique conversations about advancing the specialty. This season, we're analyzing innovation adaptations with master surgeons around the world. Today's episode focuses on implantology, moderated by Dr. Nardi Kassap, featuring Drs. Hendrik Terhaden and Dr. Javier Gonzalez Lagunas. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the session. Welcome to the IOMS podcast series about innovations, adaptations with master surgeons across the world. Today's podcast will be on the topic of implantology, and we are lucky to host two of the most leading voices in our field, Dr. Hendrik Terheyden from Germany and Dr. Javier Gonzalez Lagunas from Spain. I am sure that our listeners from the IOMS e-learning community are eager to hear about your unique and special insights on the topic of implantology. I would love to start with some introduction. Dr. Terhaden, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Where do you teach and practice? And a bit about your career in the field of implantology. Yes, uh, with pleasure. Thank you very much for the kind uh, invitation. I'm since 1993 specialized in oral maxillofacial surgery. I'm double qualified with medicine and dental education. And uh, I had my specialization at the University of Kiel, where I still hold my teaching position. And then 2007, I was called to Kassel to become chairman of a department for maxillofacial surgery. We serve about 2,000 major surgeries every year, and many of them are implant cases. If you'd like to know more, I'm section editor of the International Journal of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery and Implantology and hold some other positions in the societies. Okay, thank you. Dr. Lagunas, the same question. Can you tell us about your practice and teaching positions, and of course, about your rich career in the field of implantology? Thank you, Nari. Uh, I am uh, as well a double degree total maxillofacial surgeon. I've been trained, I trained in, in Barcelona, where I am currently practicing. I was uh, working at the university hospital uh, until 2007. And at uh, that moment, I left the university hospital and I work in a, a private hospital at the moment. Uh, I've been involved with implantology since the beginning of my career. I also finished my training in 1992. And uh, at the moment, I, am, uh, I have written uh, two books on implantology, manual, basic manual on implantology, advanced surgery uh, in, in dental implants. And at the moment, I am uh, the director of a Master of Implantology that takes care of uh, one edition in Barcelona and the other edition in Poland. Thank you both for these impressive introductions. I will now want to ask you some questions, and we'd love to have both of your answers and see how so experienced surgeons feel and think about different issues in the field. And for the first question, let's start with Dr. Lagunas. What was the most important paradigm shift in implantology during your career, Dr. Laguna? Um, 
from my point of view, I think that uh, the main change uh, has been uh, the change in timing of the different procedures in of the implantology uh, process. No? Uh, those that those of us that have been involved in the early days of the Brandenburg system, we can remember the strict policy that we follow. And in, in the beginning, uh, you removed a tooth, you wait. Uh, a few months until the bone was healed. Then you were installing the, the fixture, normally submerged. Then uh, three to six months later, you had to, to make the second stage surgery, install the abutment. And a few weeks later, when the soft tissues uh, were healed, then uh, the prosthesis could start. So that meant uh, sometimes more than one year for, for the patient since the, he had his tooth removed or broken or whatever until he had uh, uh, a prosthetic solution in his mouth. I think that uh, that's been the main change. I think that uh, since uh, probably late 90s, early 2000, when uh, all the immediate loading started to be uh, in, the, in the academic press, uh, that's been uh, the, the main change. Uh, those, the change in the, in the implant surface, the change in the shape of the implants, the change in it and the neck. Also, uh, uh, our technique, the know-how, how we do things, have completely changed this, the scenario. And I think this, this change has also been very good for the patients because the, uh, the patients finally were telling us, doctor, that's too long. I cannot wait that long to have uh, my, uh, my mouth restored. So probably this change in the, in the, in the timing is the, the, main, the, main, the main shift. Thank you, Dr. Lagunas. Dr. Terhayden, the same question. What was the most important paradigm shift in implantology during your career? Dr. Nadia, Dr. Lagunas, I noticed that we are already in the middle of a debate and a discussion. <laughs> uh, we have heard pretty much the popular way in the southern states, southern hemisphere, but in my part of the world, and for me, it was the introduction of bone augmentation. In old times, implant restorations came simply to an end and implants were not possible when bone was lacking. This has shifted now almost to the opposite. Nowadays, for most defect types, there are techniques available to regenerate the bone. Today, we know that adequate bone is the most important success factor for long-term implant health. Although bone augmentation is usually not promoted by many, the techniques have been continuously improved by the surgeons over the years towards less invasiveness and lower burden. The final aim is a bone situation like in the youth of the patient and 30s, which look and feel like natural. Thank you. Very interesting. <laughs> Um, thank you. I would love to continue with you, Dr. Terhayden, for the next question. In research years, immediate loading has gained a lot of popularity with many advocates from one side and some critics from the other side. And I would love to hear your opinion. What are the limits of immediate loading in terms of isolated defects, full arch defects, totally edentulous patients? I have to say that I'm relatively reluctant with immediate loading concepts. 
because they have to be achieved at therapeutic costs for the patients. Some of these costs are dental implants with very sharp threads, which might later be difficult to clean if a periimplantitis occurs. Another cost is that the implants cannot be placed where the prosthetic function dictates, but where the bone is. That means that these implants may stay lifelong in compromised positions. Most patients who require dental implants come already from a situation with reduced tooth number and reduced function. They are accustomed to low function and they not miss too much function if they were a provisional denture for a few months longer. If somebody wishes immediately a better hold of the provisional prosthesis, then provisional implants do the good job. The higher is the later satisfaction once we have delivered the definitive uh, prosthesis. Thank you. Dr. Lagunas, I'm anxious to hear your point of view regarding immediate loading. So the same question, what are the limits of immediate loading in terms of isolated defects, full arch defect, totally edentulous patients? Uh, thank you, Nardi. I, I think I am on the other side. And as uh, this uh, very well-known uh, hotels company, I am a fan. Um, I think it's a very well-established procedure and probably in my practice, uh, the only limitation for the rehabilitation would be the uh, posterior aspect of both jaws when we are doing some fixed bridge or when doing single tooth units. In those cases, I would definitely go for a classical protocol. Uh, of course, also cases that you might have, you might be doing some kind of bony reconstruction. But for instance, for a full mouth, if I can install for implants in a jaw, I would definitely go for it. Maybe I I wouldn't go for that if the the plan was to do an overdenture in the maxilla. I think that this is um, that might be a contraindication. Uh, in the anterior aspect, I think that uh, uh, this is a must for the quality of life uh, of the patient, even though the concept of um, immediate uh, loading should be uh, maybe um, the, the, I mean, there should be some uh, restriction of the load. Uh, on the other on the other hand, I mean, uh, this is not something for everybody. There are some minimal uh, conditions to do that. You need uh, a minimal number of implants. You need uh, a good primary stability, of course. You need uh, implants of standard length and height. You need an implant with the right shape, with the right threads, with the right surface. And of course, uh, the, the other part of the business is the prosthodontics. You, you need to have a, a, a team of prosthodontists or in, in a laboratory team that uh, are experienced and understand the basic, the basic concepts of those cases. Thank you. I have to say that yeah, your all <laughs> views on the topic are interesting and, of course, uh, very opposite, but uh, that's very interesting. Um, let's move to the next question. And I want to ask you, Dr. Lagunas, we are all living in a very technological era. And I'm interested in your view regarding the use of computerized aids in implantology. So. The question is, how have computerized sterolithographic stents influenced your practice? When do you use them and when not? 
it's uh, it's not a common practice for me. I, I hardly ever use uh, those kind of uh, stereolithographic uh, stands. I mean, I. I I mean, I've, I've been using that for many years. Uh, I mean, install, I mean, I've been installing implants for many years, and I have a bit of expertise on that. I, I uh, occasionally use them in cases of um, high risk, high risk regarding some anatomic conditions, basically the nerve. Uh, complicated cases where we might have uh, limitations in the position of the implants, cases where we have to do some kind of maxillary resection, or uh, in some special case where we have, I don't know, for instance, four zygomatic implants. But normally, uh, I'm not uh, really using uh, this kind of uh, of uh, templates of, or surgical guides in a, in a standard case. Another possibility is also in the case with a very uh, limited uh, space because the patient has a neighbor tooth, it's a single implant tooth, and the implant has to be in just a single position. That's the only position. That might be another situation, but not for a, for a standard case. Great. Dr. Ter Hayden, the same question. Uh, Dr. Nadi, I like your questions, I have to say. And here we are, both speakers pretty much in line. Um, yeah. There was a time when I used stereolithographic uh, computerized stents more often, but an experienced implant surgeon, after maybe thousands of implants, probably does achieve the same or better results at much cost saving. Nowadays, I consider computerized stereolithographic stents more as an educational tool for the younger dentists. It is good if they operate first on the computer before they go to real surgery. Uh, another place, as my uh, opponent has, or my, my co-speaker has already mentioned, are patients with anatomical irregularities. Wow, that's great to hear both of you. <laughs> and... Again, thank you, Dr. Terken. Please continue with me to the next question. What is your approach for patients treated with long-term oral and IV anti-resorptive medications? Are there any other systemic contraindications for implantology? Um, to my understanding, bone augmentations are contraindicated in such situations. The use of dental implants is allowed, but with caution. The indication is always a balance between a reduced number of a few strategic implants and the prevention of a new osteonecrosis due to the osteotomies. And therefore, these should be done in a flapless way with minimal trauma. The aim of dental implants in patients anti, under anti-resorptive medications is to prevent the tegumentally worn prosthesis and therefore prevent pressure source. Therefore, such a prosthesis should be stabilized or better fully worn by dental implants. Thank you. Dr. Lagunas, can you share your experience? Um, I heard the lecture from you. 
<laughs> Thank you. Uh, basic, uh, basic approach, I think. Um, but uh, some some minor details. I think that it depends on the drug of the, the patient is taken and the underlying conditions. For instance, patients who are having uh, treatment uh, endovenous treatments with uh, somedronate uh, someta for multiple myoma or cis-metastatic disease are poor candidates for everything. I think that no, no bone augmentation, as a matter of fact, not even dental implants should be done in those cases. I see. I think we should keep. Uh, Oral surgery, oral oral procedures to a minimum in the in this kind of patients. The other thing is patients that are uh, under oral medication for osteoporosis, and in those cases, I think that treatment should should be customized because, as a matter of risk, the the, the as a matter of fact, the risk of de- developing this kind of uh, problem in in patients under oral oral medication maybe is around two or three per ten thousand something like that. So the risk is really low. Um, as uh, my colleague said, uh, consider, if you consider that an ill-adapted mucosupported prosthesis is a risk factor to develop that, I think that uh, the installation of a dental implants should not be discarded as a preventive procedure. But of course, this should be done uh, with extreme care uh, using a specific time windows, probably uh, in, in each specific case, and obviously with a very gentle and sleek uh, surgical technique. Wow. Thank you. And again, Dr. Lagunas, my question is for you. What is your approach for the treatment of perimplantitis? And if I may elaborate, what should be the expected life expectancy of complex implant-supported rehabilitation? As a matter of fact, I, I am not really involved in the management of perimplantitis. It's my prosthodontics or period colleagues who take care of that. Uh, my job, uh, as a matter of fact, in this particular uh, topic is in education and prevention. Education regarding uh, the importance of management of the inflammatory disease to the patient before we start. And uh, education, for instance, on the avoidance of, of smoking as, as a risk factor. Uh, second is prevention. Uh, prevention is, is uh, part of, of my business as well. Uh, what my, my job is to install the implants in the right bone, uh, in a solid, healthy bone, with a good envelope of keratinized tissue, uh, using the right hardware, meaning the, the right fixture, uh, and uh, using the, the fixtures that will try to minimize the risk of the developing uh, this disease. But in the day-to-day management of, of perimplantitis, uh, I'm not involved in that at all. Thank you. Dr. Terhayden, the same one. What is your approach for the treatment of perimplantitis? And what should be the expected life expectancy of complex implant-supported rehabilitations? That's the second question. Yes, yes. These are two questions, but um, I was president of the German Society of Dental Implantology, and I was involved there in the writing of a treatment guideline on periimplantitis. And there we have seen important points. Uh, in periimplantitis situation, it is relatively predictable to cure the infection by complete decontamination of the implant surface. This is possible by various methods. I prefer titanium brushes and glycine air polishing 
in an open flap access. And that's, that's why there is a maxillofacial surgeon involved to expose all these uh, implant surfaces, especially on the palatal and lingual sides. The more difficult problem is to eliminate the pockets on the long run. I try to fill the defects with bone substitute material from the bottom to end maybe with a fibrokeramic regenerate, which prevents again the apical downgrowth of the junctional epithelium. Currently, and finally, the most challenging part is to prevent a reinfection of the pocket and to secure a true long-term stability of the implant. According to literature figures, we can achieve this in two-thirds of the cases. And for this, it's best achieved with a perio-maintenance program. Concerning the life expectancy, I published in our group a paper on uh, complex implant rehabilitations after LEFR1 interpositional grafting. And there we found, uh, this was published this year in clinical oral implants research, and we found a 95% uh, implant survival over 10 years in such uh, complex cases and over 100 cases. I personally plan a complex implant-supported rehabilitation with a high life expectancy in mind, in principle, with a lifelong prognosis. Bone augmentation and prosthesis stability should therefore be designed in a way that it can last lifelong. The reason for this approach is that unlike technical devices, the dental implant cannot be simply exchanged by a spare part. The prognosis of subsequent Replacement implants in the same patient decrease with the number of repetitions. Finally, there are only two modes of implant loss known, mechanical and biological problems. Mechanical complications can be prevented by use of a sufficient number and stable, not too thin dental implants. And biological complications can at first be prevented by a sufficient bone and soft tissue uh, uh, environment at time of placement. And again, on the long run, by a supportive periodontal program. And this is both in our hands. Thank you. <clears throat> there are a lot of controversies. <laughs> and I'm sure that the listeners have a lot of questions. But uh, Dr. Teherdin and Dr. Lagunas, I can't believe that we have already reached the end of our podcast on the topic of implantology. I feel that we could continue talking about these issues for hours now. We just open <laughs> some things. And I had a great time, and I'm sure that our listeners got some great insights and a deep look through the eyes and experience of two such bright and experienced surgeons. I want to thank you for taking part in this unique project of IAMS, for sharing your experience with our listeners, and for your contribution to the educational endeavor of IOMS. This is also a great opportunity to thank the head of the podcast committee of IOMS, Dr. Joselyn Shand, and the chairman of the education committee, Dr. Gali Gali. I want to thank you, 
our listeners for taking the time and joining our podcast. Please visit IOMS website for more podcasts and many other educational and other great activities. All my best, Naomi. Thank you again for joining us today. Visit us online at www.iaoms.org to become a member of our vibrant global community and to access a variety of education and timely resources. Stay up to date on IAOMS by following us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're here so you're the first to know when new episodes are released. Until next time.